Well, if you would turn once again in your Bibles to our text that we will look at this evening in the book of Exodus, the second, chap- second book of the Bible. We're going to be looking at the last portion of Exodus chapter 15. We'll be looking at a passage where Israel comes to the waters at Marah. This follows on, you may recall, the last few times we were together. We saw the Israelites redeemed from Egypt. And then we saw them go out from Egypt and come up to the Red Sea. And the Lord our God miraculously, supernaturally, and powerfully rescued them from the Egyptians. He parted the Red Sea and Israel walked on dry land. And then Israel got to the other side and the Egyptians were destroyed. They broke out into spontaneous praise. And so that is where we pick up our narrative again this evening in Exodus 15, verses 22 through 27. Hear now the very word of the true and living God. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Exodus 15, beginning at verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried out to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water. And the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, open our eyes that we might behold marvelous things in your word. Open our ears that we might hear your voice in your word. And Lord, open our mouths that we might speak to others of your grace that is found in Jesus Christ. This we ask. In Christ's precious name, amen. There is a saying that hindsight is 2020. And by that we mean, if we only knew what we did not know, then we would know. In other words, if we knew at the time what we would learn, we would be able to handle life's challenges much easier. The problem, though, is life doesn't work that way. Tests come to us, and we need to respond in faith, not seeing the outcome already before us. And we also must learn from the tests that come our way in order to face tests in the future. And so here we have this evening a test that comes to Israel. 
fresh upon their leaving the land of Egypt. And so from this test at the waters of Marah, I'd like us to see three things. First, there is the test of faith. Second, there is Israel's response of faithlessness. And then third, and most importantly, we see God's response of grace. A test of faith that comes to Israel. Their response of faithlessness. And God's response of grace. Let's start then by looking at this test that comes to Israel at the waters of Marah. Now, remember the context of this test. It's been a few weeks since we've been together in the book of Exodus. But remember that Israel has just experienced deliverance at the Red Sea. Moses reminds us of that in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. It's a reminder of that deliverance. This is happening fresh on the heels of that great victory. There's nothing intervening. There's nothing to change Israel's mind or to give them any new thoughts about God or themselves or their journey. This is right after their victory that God provided at the Red Sea. And Israel had crossed the Red Sea on dry land, and then they had broken out spontaneously in song. We saw this in the beginning of chapter 15 in the so-called Song of Moses. I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The Lord is my strength and my song. And you will recall, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? So that's the context here. That Israel has seen God in all His glory. They've seen Him in all His power. And they praise Him. And now God desires that they move on from this place. And so Moses, the text tells us, made Israel set out from the Red Sea. And I think the language there is instructive. It doesn't say Israel set out. It said Moses made them set out. He caused them to depart, is what the Hebrew means. And isn't it often in our nature to desire to just rest in God's victory? To simply stand and experience it and not to move on in life? The truth is that the Christian life is not like treading water. Have you ever treaded water in a lake or in the ocean? It can actually be quite exhausting, can't it? But you're not moving anywhere. You're in one spot and your legs are kicking. You're treading water trying to stay above the water line, but you're not going anywhere. That's not how we are to spend our energy in the Christian life. The Christian life is about always moving forward. It's about going to the celestial city. It is about experiencing the kingdom of God. It's not resting in our own experiences. What we also understand that the travel itself that Israel is about to undertake gives us context for this test. Moses tells us that they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now, you have to remember that this is a dry, hot land. I want you to think 
of Houston last week. Remember when the low high was 99 and it got over 100 and it was a heat that was almost oppressive that it beats down upon you and you don't have any shade and you don't want to get into your car because the minute you touch the handle or the steering wheel, you burn your hand. It's so hot. That's what's going on here. They're in a dry, hot land traveling for three days. Now, this is important for us to understand the context because I think too often when we come to a passage like this, we look at it and we say, well, these dumb Israelites, why don't they just listen to God? What's their problem? This is so simple. All they need to do is trust God. But the reality is, is that they're in a place of difficulty and struggle. They're going one day without water. Now, if you've ever had the experience of being someplace where you don't have water, a few hours is enough to make you tired and cranky. Then if you go an entire day, and then you hope on day two to find water, and a whole second day goes by, and there's still no water, and then you wake up on day three, and there's still no water, you can imagine we've gone from being cranky to being afraid and concerned. And it's not as if this is a healthy, young, vibrant Boy Scout troop out on a trek. No, you will recall that the entire nation of Israel goes out into the wilderness. So what we have here are families with children, large families. Families of six, seven, eight, nine children. Because we understand this because Israel has grown in Egypt. God has blessed them with many, many children. We also have older people going out into the wilderness. So this entire nation goes out three days without water, with children weak and crying, with older people struggling along. This is the context here for this test. And so the nature of this test that comes to them is not a light test. Even though they have just come from the remarkable deliverance of the Red Sea, we have to understand that what they're looking at is this test that's right before them. So let me ask you this question. When something comes your way, when you get a bad report from the doctor, do you say to yourself, well, at least it's not as bad as the thing that happened to me five years ago. I won't worry about that at all. Or when there's a struggle in your family, do you say, well, at least that's not like the financial problems we had 10 years ago. No, you don't. You focus on the trouble at hand. You don't set it in the context of previous trials and circumstances. You're consumed by what's before you. So even though they've just left from the Red Sea, their minds are focused on a lack of water. Now, this test is designed by God to bring them to God. You see, God knows something they don't. God knows what we know from the rest of the book of Exodus, that Israel is about to face many, many more tests on the way to the promised land. They're going to face hunger. They'll face thirst again. They're going to face enemies and warfare. They're going to face fortified cities. They're going to face rebellion in their midst. And so God designs this, what we might consider very simple test, to teach them the principle of coming to Him in a time of difficulty. And, and so they will face these other problems. But there is another challenge for Israel. 
They had just pleaded to God to be rescued from the Red Sea, and God had rescued them, and now here's something else follows quick on its heels. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever had God answer your prayers only to follow that immediately with a test? When that happens, does that break your spirit? Do you think, Lord, I just got over this one thing. You just delivered me. What are you doing now? So we can imagine that Israel is in a very difficult place. And so they come now to the waters at Merah. You could imagine what this would look like. After three days of finding no water, they see this water. You can almost picture it in your mind's eye. They all run to the water. They, they lean down. They start to gulp up the water. And then what you see perhaps, I guess would the best way to be describe it, is if you've ever seen a film or a movie where there's a spit take, where people put water into their mouth and they just spit it all out. That's what would happen. Because this water was undrinkable. That's what Moses means when he tells us that it was bitter. It's not just that it was, okay, it's not the best kind of flavored water. No. This was water that they couldn't swallow. It might have even been a salt type of water. It was something that we, they would not want to take down. It was bitter. Now here we see something also about the nature of the test. Where else would Israel have experienced something that was bitter? If you recall back in the beginning of this book, in Exodus chapter 1, verse 14, we were told that their bondage was made bitter by the Egyptians. That their slavery was made bitter. And so God is reminding them of a life they have left behind, and he is putting before them a choice. To look with the eyes of faith or to look with the eyes of sight. And so this is where we pick up now in verse 24, Israel's response. And it is a response of faithlessness. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Now, this word here, grumbled is very evocative. We see it over and over again in the book of Exodus. And it has the connotation of grumbling, of murmuring, of talking under your breath. So if you want to find out about how annoying, how difficult, how disrespectful this is, all you have to do is be a parent. Because if you're a parent, you have heard your child at one time in your life grumble under their breath. You know, when every parent's response was, did you say something? And then, of course, every child's proper response was, no, no, nothing at all. Right? Because they don't want to own up to it. Now, we don't grow out of this when we become adults. We just grumble at other adults. But that's what's happening here. The, the Israelites are grumbling. They are murmuring. They are complaining. And it's interesting that this word in Hebrew actually sounds like complaining and grumbling and moaning. It's a very harsh-sounding word. And after all, this has been building up for three days. They've been getting more and more angry, more and more concerned. And it just pours out of their hearts and their mouths. This will not be the first time they will grumble. We'll see it again in Exodus chapter 17. We see it in Numbers 14 and in Numbers 16. 
This is something that has now taken over their entire attitude and being. Have you ever been so angry that you can't bring yourself to say anything good? That something good is happening, you see it and you acknowledge it, but you don't want to. You stay silent. You know, there's an old saying, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. But I think for the grumbler, the, the statement should be, if I can't whine and moan and complain, I'll say nothing at all. That's where Israel is at this moment. And you can see this from the way that the question is asked. What shall we drink? It's asked with a harsh edge. Okay, Moses, three days you've been wandering around leading us. No water. And now we finally find water and it's horrible. What are you going to do? What shall we drink? Are we going to perish now here of thirst? You can almost hear in the back of their minds, did you rescue us from Egypt and the Red Sea just to kill us with thirst here in the wilderness? And so this way of speaking reveals a rebellious attitude, a pattern that sets itself in Israel. Now, notice that there is a link here, that the water is bitter. But there's really something else that's bitter. It's their hearts. God is using this test to show the content of their heart, that they're bitter toward God unless God provides everything that they want on their schedule. They're angry with God. It would be no more clear than if they had said to Moses, Okay, Moses, Arrange with God to get us something to drink. We need something to drink. Go talk to God and get us something to drink. Order it up right now. And so this attitude of faithlessness leads to a faithless judgment. It's not just that they are thinking the wrong things, but that leads them to the wrong conclusions. So what they begin to do now is make an attack on God's servant, Moses. They blame Moses. And really, in blaming Moses, they're blaming God. They're making an attack on God, that this is God's fault, that he's the one to blame. Now, there is a choice before us when we have hard circumstances. We can either submit to God and to the authorities that he's placed over us, or we can rebel against him and be faithless. And we all have opportunities to do this. Now, I don't expect to take you all wandering in the wilderness of Shur this week. But I will tell you, children, you will have to listen to your parents about things that you think you shouldn't have to. And I'll tell you, wives, you will have to submit to your husbands in ways that you don't think you should have to. And men, you will have to submit to your employers and to officers in the church and to others in ways that you think are beyond you. But when that comes to you, will you be faithless in your judgment? Will you be faithless in your attitude? Or will you trust the Lord that the Lord has given those circumstances to you? You are not in the family you are in by accident. You weren't randomly drawn for a father and mother. No, God is in charge here. And so as we seek the Lord in our circumstances, we must remember 
to submit to him and not be faithless in our judgment. Well, the Israelites continue along this faithless path. And the third thing that we see is a faithless hope. That is, they have no confidence in God. They have no hope that God will come through. Because if they did, they would have gone to Moses and said, Moses, we are in a difficult place. But we know that the, God, the Lord can provide. Please go to Him. Pray to Him that He would deliver us just as He has delivered us over and over again. We know God can provide. We just can't find or see the way. Ask Him to show us the way. But we see none of that here. What we see from them is, what shall we drink then? How on earth is this going to work, Moses? Where will we possibly find hope? There is no hope that God will come through. Now, once again, there is application for you and for me, and it goes beyond getting something cold to drink. Do we have hope for our nation today? Do you have hope that revival would break out in America in 2020? That revival would not just be something we talked about from the 1700s or the 1800s, but that revival would break out in America in 2020. After all, everything else unusual has happened in 2020. Why should God not bring revival to his people? Now, do we have that hope? Or are we instead just resigned to misery and defeat and diminishment? You see... To look that way at the world is to have a faithless hope in God. To say that God's not able. Because when we think about things like revival, it doesn't depend on you and me. It depends on God. And when we say there's no way revival would come, what we're saying is we serve a flawed God. A weak God. A God who can't provide. And I tell you this evening... It is just as faithless to say God can't provide revival as it is to say God can't provide water. Trust the Lord. You see, Israel had moved their hope from God to their circumstances. They looked at what was around them and what was possible. And that was where they took their cue. Their circumstances no longer were a place where God would meet them. No, instead, their circumstances were what ruled over them. Well, the good news is that Exodus 15 does not end at verse 24. That it carries on through verses 25 through 27. And here we see, in response to Israel's response of faithlessness, God's response of grace. And his response of grace is seen first in his gift of Moses to them. Now we have to remember that Moses is God's chosen leader. Moses doesn't just happen to wander by the Israelite camp and say, hey, does anybody need some water? No, Moses has been in the works, we might say, for 80 years. He spent 40 years in Egypt and 40 years in the wilderness. God is patient beyond anything we consider patient. 80 years in the works, in the preparing, is Moses. 
And so why is this a blessing that God gives Moses to his people? Well, let's look at Moses' response. When Israel comes up and says, what shall we drink? Moses responds by crying to the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I would be tempted as a leader if the Israelites came up to me and started complaining about water. I'd say, listen, buddies, pipe down. We just got you through the Red Sea. A week ago, you were a slave building pyramids. How about you, you keep it down a little bit here and let us think and take care of something and stop being so entitled. Now, that's what I would have expected Moses to respond with. Because after all, he's the one being accused. He's the one being abused. But that's not how Moses responds. He responds with grace. He cries out to the Lord. He goes immediately to prayer. What a great blessing it is for Israel to have a leader like Moses. Now let me ask you. Do you pray that the Lord would give you leaders like Moses? Men who are men of prayer. Men who are men of God's word. Men who seek to serve and to bless you. If you haven't been praying for that, you should be. Because it is only by the grace of God that the leaders of God's people can lead. It is only through the power of God. And so Moses here sets an example for the people of God. He shows them what an appropriate response to this circumstance would be. He goes to the Lord. He does what Israel should have done. And so he shows them how to live faithfully before God. Is that your desire? Do you desire to set an example for your children? For your siblings? For your friends? For your neighbors? To show them in times of struggle and strife that God is sufficient. You know, the irony is that when things are worst in the world, Christians should be at their best. It gives us an opportunity to look beyond the present, to look beyond the trials and to see the God who delivers. It gives us an opportunity to show our friends and neighbors and family that we really do trust God. It's not just because everything's going great, but even when things are not going as we want them to, we trust the Lord. God's response of grace is seen in the gift of Moses, but it's also seen in the gift of healing. Because Moses is shown a log by the Lord and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. And so what we see here is God healing the water, making the undrinkable drinkable. Now, we could look at this text and I think perform some allegory that would be unappreciated. Um, we could talk about the tree being like the cross and the bitter waters being like our sin. And this is how God reverts our sin from us. I'd like us to see something much more basic and applicatory. Moses throws a log, a tree, into the water. Now, I'm not a farmer, nor a son of a farmer, and I I've never really even worked in anything agricultural. But I can tell you that trees do not grow fast. You can't plant a tree and a week later have it sprout up. Trees take years, decades to grow. 
Now, why is this important? It's because this log, this tree that God has placed there for this exact moment in time, that these waters that are bitter would be made sweet for his people, he has prepared this providence decades in the making. God knows what he's doing. He's always prepared. And so, God is always ready. He is never surprised by events. I think, again, that is where our faith is so important. As we see all of these twists and turns in our circumstances with COVID-19, as we are surprised, what will the next regulation be? What will the next law be? What will the next circumstance be? We're caught by surprise. We don't know what to do. Should I buy more masks or should I not? Should, do I need to buy these kinds of cleaners? What will I need to do? How will I prepare for school in the fall? Do I have to have better computers or will we be, on, will we be in person? We don't know. I can tell you with great confidence that God's not surprised by any of this. He knows everything that's going on. And so what that means is if you put your trust in him, he will not fall short. He will not forget. He will not say, oh, I'd love to help you, but I didn't plan for that contingency. God doesn't have contingencies. God is sovereign and in control. And this is contrasted to the way of man. God responds to the people of Israel when they complain by blessing them in his grace. Do you remember the last time Israel really complained in this book? It was in Exodus chapter 5. Do you remember that Israel complained about the tally of bricks to Pharaoh? And do you remember what Pharaoh did? He said, well, if you're going to complain about that, by the way, make the bricks without straw. Pharaoh doubled down. He laid misery upon misery, burden upon burden. And here we see that God is not like man, that God blesses Israel in spite of their complaints. Now we see this, how God does this in glimpses of what will come at the very end of our passage. Look at verse 27 with me. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water, and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. So Israel complains against God, and God in his grace heals the water there so that they might drink. But God never does anything by half measures. Mercy drops around them may be falling, but the showers are about to fall of blessing. Because what they do is they go from that place to Elam, where there's not only water, there's a spring or a well for every tribe. And there are not only water to drink, there's shade. There's 70 palm trees. And so Israel encamps there by the water. God takes them from blessing to greater blessing. This is how God blesses his people. He blesses us beyond anything we could imagine. In this point, when Israel is bound up in their grumbling and their complaining and focused on their circumstances, they would be glad to get a sip to drink. And God says, a sip is not enough. I'll give you 12 wells. I'll give you palm trees of shade. I will bring you to a place of safety and blessing. God's grace is seen not only in the gift of his servant, but is seen in the gift of healing. And then the final thing we see this evening is that God's grace is seen in the gift 
of His law. Now, God's instruction for us is good. We need to understand this. So often, we make the mistake in the American church of dividing law and grace. As if law can have anything, nothing at all to do with grace. That if we want to have grace, we have to jettison God's law, jettison His instructions. We need to be free to be me. That's what grace means too often. But what this text provides for us is another example of how God blesses us in His grace by giving to us His instruction, His law. And it comes to us in an interesting way. We see here in verse 25, There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. There He tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in His eyes, and give ear to His commandments, and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord, your healer. But the interesting thing is, this is not the first place that God instructs. You might miss it because of the translation. In verse 25, the Lord showed Moses a log. And the word therefore showed is the root that we get the word Torah or law from. Instruction. God showed Moses how the water could be healed. God's instruction is good for us. It brings life. It is not harsh. It is not wrong. God's instruction for us is for our good. And so God's people are blessed by God's law. And we see here that God's people were never without His law. Again, it is a, a common construct to say that Israel had no law until Mount Sinai. That it was at Mount Sinai that the law came. And then all of these laws came and changed Israel's life forever. Well, we see right here in verse 26 that Israel has statutes and commandments. And we're going to see in a weeks to come in chapter 16 that the law of God retaining the Sabbath happens before the law is given in Exodus 20. God's people always have His law because God's law is an expression of who God is. His law is a way for us to live in holiness and righteousness. And so when God gives you instructions, listen. Listen diligently. Because after all, what a privilege it is to hear the voice of God. But don't just listen. When God gives instructions, do. Now that sounds overly simplistic. It might even seem meritorious or works-based. But when God in His grace has given a relationship to His people, when He has brought His people to Himself who do not deserve anything, that's what we see here. God has already redeemed Israel. They are already His He's not saying, you need to do this so maybe I will take you out of Egypt. He's not saying, if you keep my commandments, then maybe I'll be your God. He says, I am your God. And because I am your God, I give you my word that you might live lives of wholeness and of health and of worth. And there is a promise and a warning given here. 
The promise is that if you follow the statutes and the commandments, none of the diseases which I brought upon the Egyptians will come to you. And the implicit warning is, if you wander from me, if you seek sin, if you think there's hope and blessing in sin, you'll experience the fruit of sin. You will have diseases, punishments, challenges. Well, what can we make of all of this? Three very brief points for you to think about as you go home tonight. First, we must remember that trials will come. I imagine the last thing on the Israelites' mind as they just moved away from the roaring waters of the Red Sea, clapping back together, was that they would face a trial momentarily. But that's the way of life here in a sinful world. Trials will come our way. So we should not be surprised by them. We should rather be prepared for them, prepared to look to the Lord. Second, we need to remember that patience is a virtue. There's a reason why that's a, a proverb, so to speak. We need to remember that God's time is not our time. That God works according to His wisdom and His ways. And even though it may not be exactly in the time that we would want, we have to remember that God knows better than we do. So, just for example, one illustration. There are many young people who are seeking a spouse. And they want to know why God is taking so long to bring them someone to come alongside them and to live life with them and that they can love and start a family with. And they want God to get cracking because they're ready now. But what they don't know is how God is preparing them for a spouse and preparing someone else for them. That God is doing this in His timing, in His way, to bless His people. Fastest is not always best. And God knows this. God is patient and long-suffering, the Bible tells us. Long-suffering with His people. We should be patient and long-suffering with our circumstances. To trust God and to emulate Him. And the third and final thing that I want you to consider is to look for the grace of God in life. In a trial like we see here in Exodus 15, the last thing that the Israelites expected to see was the grace of God. They were expecting failure and misery. They were expecting competition, arguments. And what they got was the grace of God. God shows grace to his people in marvelous ways. In ways we don't expect, in ways we don't deserve. That's why it's called grace. And so as you live your life this week, and as challenges or difficulties or trials come your way, don't focus just on the circumstance or the trial. Look for the grace that God will bring to you. How he will use that trial to show you his grace. That is who he is. He is the gracious God who loves his people. Let's pray.